Hello and welcome to the TransAsia and the World podcast. I'm Galen. And I'm Joy. And we're talking today about birth control and contraceptives in China during the mid-20th century. We're happy to have Sarah Mellers with us today in the studio. Welcome, Sarah. Hi. Sarah Mellers is a new assistant professor of history at Missouri State University, where she teaches East Asian and world history. She does research on the history of birth control in 20th century China. So uh, good to have you, Sarah. Thank you. So before we get too much into your research, which was super interesting, you did a ton of interviews with women about birth control in the 50s. I wanted to set the stage, the historical stage for the time period you study. You know, there's the Republican period from 1911 to 49, then the communist period after that, the Great Leap Forward in 57. Like that's the kind of standard way we think about Chinese history in terms of uh, those big political events. But I wanted to know, where is your research in that standard timeline of modern China? And how do you maybe see the timeline differently? It's a great question. So I, as I was working on my dissertation, I was thinking about Gail Hershatter's idea of campaign time. And she encourages researchers to move beyond the kind of standard periodization of Chinese history, of modern Chinese history, which focuses more or less exclusively on particular campaigns. And she encourages us to make our own timelines. And I found that I, there's really no one timeline of birth control. There's really, I guess, I guess there's, there's many different timelines. There's many different turning points. And it depends mostly on where a person's located, how much money they had prior to the revolution of 49 um, and their education level. So it would be difficult to, to come up with any one timeline, but if I had to, I would say that the big turning points would have been um, in the late 50s, right before the Great Leap Forward, in the early 60s, following the Great Leap Forward, after it had already been declared a failure, there was a, a kind of a second and renewed effort to get people interested in family planning. And then the start of the Cultural Revolution in 66 really inaugurated a, a, new, t- a new kind of period in reproductive history. The Cultural Revolution, coupled with the Sent Down Youth Movement, really made abortion somewhat from it, it switched from somewhat of a marginal practice to really a mainstream contraceptive practice that was a real milestone i would say what's changing in the 1950s that so interested you so up until um the mid 50s the standard line in china had been to follow big brother follow the soviet union encourage people to have as many children as possible because it's going to strengthen the nation um, and make for a, a better workforce. And then kind of almost out of nowhere, there's this conversation right around the time of the 100 Flowers movement where people start um, openly criticizing this policy and saying, you know, why don't people have access to contraceptives? Anyway, that conversation doesn't get very far and is kind of sent underground with the anti-rightist campaign. But it got me thinking, what are actual people doing at this time? Because 
individual lives don't follow the lives of or follow the the course of elite debates. Um, so when if a woman becomes pregnant and doesn't want to be pregnant for whatever reason, she's not going to you know going to read the party newspaper is not going to help her resolve her issue. And I wondered, so what what are what were women doing at this time? Because although there's all this rhetoric of you know we're creating a new China, there's going to be more equality and and more resources and collectivization. Um, in reality, there there still wasn't that much food. There were still many of the same concerns that people had prior to the revolution, which was like food security. Yeah. Now, I don't do China. So the what was going on in the 1950s in China is a little bit more blurry for me than I think it is for Galen. So I'm wondering, what are some of these specific things that are impacting the decisions that women are having at the time? I can think of, uh, as you mentioned, kind of nutritional resources, if it's going to be access to different health care, not having community support, right? I can think of all these general things. What would you say in the 1950s was really causing women to make the decisions that they were making? This was a period of a lot of cataclysmic changes. First of all, it's the kind of the tail end of land reform. So wealthy peasants are having their um, or landlords rather and wealthier peasants are having their land taken away and there's this shift to private uh, from privatization to to communal living and collective farming and all of a sudden when when a family originally would have had control of its own kind of resources its own plot of land suddenly there's allocations of of rations for each family so a mother and a father can't even guarantee they'll have enough food for their children, which is something they had slightly more control over prior to collectivization. Um, and I think in a lot of the conversations I had with elderly people, at the end of the day, fear of not being able to feed their children um, and give them proper nutrition was was always in the back of their minds. Another kind of thing that uh, would have changed the nature of this conversation is that, it, at least in the countryside, food was allocated based on age and work points during the collective era. And so this disincentivized having more children because young children didn't earn work points and they didn't get very much food, but they still had to be fed. They, their rations weren't very big, but the parents were still responsible for feeding them, obviously. So this would have played into considerations mm -hmm. of um, whether or not to have another child. Yeah. Can you say more about that? Like, what is the state's role, their relationship with women's choices around sex and contraception in the 50s? Because what you're saying is like, on the one hand, they're promoting for at least a time, like have more kids, strengthen the nation. On the other hand, they've got these policies that make that actually more difficult. So what... What was going on with like the state and sex in the 50s? I feel like, and this can be said about a lot of different aspects of Chinese life in the 1950s, the state was really just trying to figure things out. So on the one hand, there was this language of natalism, have lots of children. Um, there was a kind of um, half-hearted ban on on books 
that explained nuts and bolts of contraception and sex. But that ban really didn't cover everything. It just covered certain books, which meant that if you were reading the other books, of course, you would have still had access to that type of information. So it wasn't even, I think there was a lot of tension within the party hierarchy, people debating whether um, birth control was ethical, whether this large population model was really the, the great idea they thought it was. Tensions with the Soviet Union didn't really help. So my sense is that for certain women, the state really did play a significant role in helping them um, or forcing them to make decisions about um, reproduction. For example, women who were in elite positions, not necessarily elite in the way we think of today, but elite as in they were cadres or they had privileged access to abortion or sterilization or various other devices those would have been factory workers and various other people who could prove that they were contributing to production. Those those women would have been directly impacted by this loosening of regulations and restrictions on access to contraception. However, for the vast, I would say the vast majority of women, the, the, the state played a very, very little role in their individual decision making. At the end of the day, it was probably, it fell on the the wife and ideally the husband and the wife to determine whether, what they were going to do if they conceived again or something like that. So I, I think the, the, the state's role, it was, it was pretty ambivalent. And mm. at the end of the day, I think that the state although it kind of had aspirations of policing sexuality, really didn't have the infrastructure to do so. Can you say something about like the attitudes towards sex that were being changed? I mean, because you think communism, it's going to have a much different thinking about marriage and sex than uh, what came before in Chinese culture. You, You said like there were certain books that people could get access to, others that were banned. What was the whole attitude towards sex in general? Like, was it still taboo? Was monogamy a really big deal? Or, yeah, what was going on with that in the 50s? Yeah, so um, monogamy was definitely standard, I think, as it has was in China for a very long time until quite recently. As for the taboo nature of sex, I think... Even in my interviews, this came through a lot. There's definitely some generational differences in attitudes towards sex. So when I was interviewing people in their 80s, for example, some would be like, oh, this is this is a very odd topic to be talking about with a young lady. Um, and yeah. I remember in, on, in one instance, um, I was going to save this for later, but I might as well tell you now, I was getting kind of warmed up to um, interview some elderly people in the park, which, which is one of the sites where I did most of my research. And I, I <laughs> pulled out of my bag like a, a, a series of props, which included old sex guides from the 50s, sex hygiene guides, little like props and toys I could find. Um, oh and this, the, this nice older woman who had kind of taken me under her wing, I think she was in her late 80s or early 90s, came over and screamed at me. She, I mean, nearly hit me over the head. 
and said, how dare you take out those things <laughs> in public? There's men over there. They can see them. Put them away. You're so rude. <laughs> and, and a younger woman in her 70s said like, oh, you, you old crab. Don't you know that today we talk about sex in public like this? This is not taboo anymore. I'm happy to tell you about my sterilization and my husband's and my friends. Wow. So, <laughs> there was definitely like a lot of variety. I mean, of course, it depends on the person, perhaps, yeah, their age and just the type of environment they were raised in. So your research methodology was, I mean, it's really impressive. You went out there and interviewed more than 50 women, right, about their basically their sex lives in the 1950s, their decisions about contraceptives and children and sex. So what was that like? <laughs> Just tell me, like, how did you break into that? Like, how do you first approach an older person about, you know, giving up information on this topic? Well, I'm not going to lie. I had to do like... I did all sorts of ridiculous things um, in in pursuit of knowledge. I Every morning when I was in um, China, I would get up when the sun came up because I know that's when older people tend to come out to do Tai Chi in the park. And I would, so I would go to the park and make sure that people saw me. I always stood out because I was the only foreigner. Um, and I would go and sit in the same place every day. <laughs> and this was before I started using props. So I'm just sort of sitting there awkwardly. Um, and people would come over and say, you know, miss, what are you doing here? You know, it's six o'clock in the morning and you're sitting out here. It's the middle of winter. <laughs> what are you doing? Um, would you like to hang out with us? So then we would start chatting and they would say, oh, you want? To, would you like to come to my house later? Would you like to join my senior citizens group? So I joined a senior citizens group. I joined a, a belly dancing group I took I, <laughs> for postpartum weight loss. And then I met all of the students' mothers. I did, <laughs> yeah, uh, all sorts of ridiculous things, ballroom dancing, really making a fool out of myself in all of the ways possible. But in doing so, I guess I must have ingratiated myself to these older people because then they would say, so what are you really here for? And I would say, well, I'm doing research on this topic. And um, some people would say, you know, what a, what a strange topic. But others would say, oh, that's kind of interesting. One person said, oh, that's such a boring topic. That, that, that topic has been written about so in so many different places and so many different languages. And I said, yeah, well, that's probably true. <laughs> Thanks for your input. <laughs> but as I so as I developed relationships with people, they would agree to have an interview. And I did interviews kind of either individually or in groups or even as um, in couples. But I found that co-ed um, yeah. interviews were generally not acceptable, except for if the if it was a married couple. So I would interview like six women and then six men, but not together hmm. because that something about that was kind of taboo. I did interview a few couples though, like older couples. And that was quite interesting hearing their, whether they could agree about their sexual history was, uh, yeah. was funny. And also just, mm -hmm. a, it, 
it became apparent to me that a lot of this decision making is also it's not just the woman's responsibility it's 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 both both people really put a lot of time and energy and thought into thinking about what's best for us what's best for our offspring now that's an interesting comment because it sounded like from some of the research that you did that frequently it was the women who at the time were expected to be the ones using contraceptives on their own bodies, so to speak. So whether it was the sterilization or abortion, or um, we even talked about guys not liking to use condoms. So did, did the people at the time see it as being a mutual decision? Or was that something that you kind of reflected on after hearing their, their memories? It kind of um, it's interesting. I felt like in, in many cases, particularly when I was interviewing men, um, they were kind of regurgitating something that they had been told to say in their younger years. Like men and women are equal. We both hold up the sky, half the sky. This is a <laughs> this is a shared responsibility. So there were definitely a lot of those sort of instances where I didn't really feel like it was genuine. And then, but in the case of couples that were, had to um, face immense poverty, I felt like it might've been more of a group decision. But I, generally speaking, um, it was, I think the woman's responsibility. Interviewing them, did you see like that they had learned some of these things from their own parents or like before the, you know, communist era, or we're like carrying on, you know, traditions of contraception and family planning from an earlier time? Or did they really talk about like, their reference point was all these messages from the state in the 50s? That's a great question. Um, yes, the, the, as you can probably imagine, um, what what happened prior to 1949 was critical in the, influencing the decision making of a lot of people, especially those who had been literate, who were literate before 49. They had been reading things. They may have um, had access to women's magazines where they would have come across very overt discussions of birth control, abortion, and sexuality. There were also these kind of guidebooks that women were given um, on their wedding nights to help guide them through consummating a marriage. And although I think those became kind of taboo under um, the communists, I mean, they were still around and people still remembered having had them. And I still was able to find them in bookshops and things. Can, can you say what that... What does that mean, a guidebook? Is it like, like a how-to document or like, a checklist? Like, like literally they didn't know how to have sex? Yeah, yeah, how to have sex, how to um, how to make sure that you're, you know, pleasing your partner. Some of the advice is quite funny. Uh, moving Even in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, there's a lot of unintentional humor <laughs> in those yeah. guides. Um, like... My favorite quote is that the average woman takes 30 minutes to orgasm, but men um, typically can only last 10 minutes. And this is the source of a lot of unhappiness in Chinese marriages. 
not just Chinese. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a graph showing like at what point you should release to optimize your marriage. To optimize your marriage. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> huh. So there's a, a a wide range of of um, advice. Some of it that we would agree with today, and some that we wouldn't. But other scholars have pointed out that the audience for these types of books was almost um, invariably female. Which I'm not. That brings one to wonder who were males learning this from, if yeah. if not from these little books. And, and the books covered a, a wide range of topics from the, the, uh, the horrors of masturbation and what this can you know, do to you psychologically, from that to, to how to prevent conception using a wide variety of different techniques, uh, many of which we would not use today. And you mentioned you used props, like when you were in the park looking for people to talk to. How did people react to seeing those old, what kind of props did you use and how did people react to them? Well, so I have um, like, I have old posters from like old posters that would have been hung in a doctor's office or in a hospital that that show the female anatomy. (laughs) So I had those with me. And yeah, like I mentioned, some people were, they felt really kind of affronted by my behavior whereas others thought it was kind of fine yeah especially yeah I'm trying to think it really depended on um the person's background I I interviewed quite a few well-educated people doctors and the like and they said oh yeah of course I'm familiar with that yeah (laughs) um so one challenge in doing oral history is the intervening years have completely shaded their people's memory of the past, right? It, it's like impossible to avoid. So how did you deal with that? Or what did you notice, like the intervening years, how that affected how they remembered sex and contraception in the 50s? Well, for this was difficult. I um, One thing I did was I tried to kind of cross-reference points that were made um, if, if one person said, you know, X thing happened in 1967, I would see if other people also had this this type of memory. And that that was useful to some extent. I could see that a lot of people just were mixing up their decades um, <laughs> or just, you know, misremembering the way we all do. Um, but in other instances, like if there was a group of people and they were all deba- debating among themselves, they would go back and forth about which year did were did we get free access to condoms? And um, by going back and forth and kind of me repeating what they were saying and having them walk backwards in time, they could. It, I think it helped trigger memories from earlier. So oftentimes feminists in the United States see contraception and then like the ability to work as being great wins for for women's equality, women's freedom. But as feminists and historians have looked at more working class women, they've often questioned things like work isn't really an aspect for freedom when you're forced to work or um, just to be able to support your family 
or having to to now not just do the home life, but also the work life as well. And so I'm wondering, in the 1950s, did did the various opportunities for contraception, did they seem to people like benefits or good things? Or did it feel like more like the one child policy was sort of forced upon many people who then didn't like it? Was it more of that kind of feeling? Well, I think for some women, it was really kind of a godsend. This was literally the only way that they would have been able to care for their children and ensure that they could raise them to adulthood. And then for other women, they felt that this was kind of inhibiting their ability to produce a son, which gets into the the issues that come about after the one child policy is implemented of, you know, sex selective abortion, et cetera. But those sort of tendencies were already those undercurrents were already present, obviously, prior to the one-child policy. Thinking about this idea of the of the double burden um, of both housework and work in the fields, I feel like for some women, the this this new emphasis, state emphasis on reproduction, um, became kind of the third burden. Um, there was this burden of of ensuring that they didn't have more children, that they adhered to these certain expectations, that they attended these regular thought meetings. This is more in the 60s with the greater emphasis on delayed marriage and spacing between pregnancies and kind of the policing, maybe not policing of their husbands, but policing of themselves and their husbands to ensure that they didn't have any slip-ups. That said, I think I don't think that was necessarily a new phenomenon, it just became a public one, whereas previously it had been kind of a private, unspoken burden that women and maybe couples had dealt with. For women, it suddenly became kind of public information and a public concern. Yeah. Can you say when exactly it became a public concern? I mean, everybody's so familiar with the one-child policy and this very oppressive thing of like women being watched basically, and your decisions to have children or not are public knowledge with grave consequences. So can you track when, like what years, what events this became like a public thing? So already in the early 1950s, women who um, had abortions out of wedlock ran the risk of being charged with various crimes. So there was already this type, some degree of policing going on. And that increased from the late 50s onward, in particular for couples having extramarital or premarital sex. I would say in a lot of my interviews, couples would say, oh, the, you know, the state didn't really, you know, notice my reproductive habits until the 60s or something. But I think from the perspective of the of official documents, it, it becomes apparent um, in the late 50s when um, that whole debate about whether China should be pursuing a policy of, of endless population growth was really a good idea. And from that point on, there were a, kind of a roller coaster of policies, either condoning or condemning birth control. But 
from that point on, it, it was already part of the public discourse. Okay, so the late 19th, what triggered that debate in the late 1950s? Was it the Great Leap Forward and, or was it something else? Um, a, a scholar named Ma Ying Chu, who um, was, a, was a professor at Peking University, um, openly criticized the, the state's population policy and was later purged in the anti-rightist campaign. But his, his comments um, precipitated this, this major discussion in state newspapers over whether we should be, people should be encouraged to have so many children. So do you see this period that you've been researching uh, as like a forerunner to the one-child policy or... Well, that kind of sounds like what you're describing, right? Like it started the conversation and some of the methods. So like, how do you see it in relation to the one-child policy that came later? I, th- I see it as, um, as the 30 years from the founding of the People's Republic until the establishment of the one-child policy as really like a test run. The, the, pol- the, the party tries out a lot of different strategies and mechanisms of control. It tries... It experiments with encouragement as opposed to coercion and kind of implying that something will be good versus giving actual monetary monetary rewards for having fewer children. So there's a lot of experimenting going on, and it definitely seems like that was the trial period for what became the one-child policy, because a lot of, I would say, almost everything that you see in the one-child policy era had already been taking place in one form or another prior to that, in particular in the 1970s, where there already were these types of incentivizing, having fewer children, making people sign contracts saying they would not have more children, penalizing them at work um, if they did have too many children, kind of the, the language of this is what you're supposed to do, this is what you're not supposed to do, this is how you... Um, ensure the correct amount of spacing between births. All of those behaviors were ingrained in people prior to the the one-child policy's official implementation. Now, it's been a number of years because they don't have a one-child policy in China right now. And so I wonder, what, what do you see as being really valuable to recover this, these decades pre-one-child policy? for either those of us who are listening today or for, you know, Chinese history in general? Hmm. Well, I, I think one of the things that initially got me interested in this topic was I, um, you, you read so much about kind of top-down histories of, of China um, and the government seems to have such a, a deep and extensive reach in all aspects of life. And I wondered if that was the case with something like um, like birth control, you know what? These are questions that are kind of universal. You're either everybody's in, affected in some way by um, reproduction, whether you're avoiding it or <laughs> trying to conceive. Um, and I I was drawn to the kind of universality of those questions. Um, but for the today's listeners, I was thinking, so now China's in a period of what it's calling a two-child policy, um, where families are being given incentives to have more 
children, actually. Mm-hmm. They're encouraged to have two children, and the party is thinking of getting rid of the policy altogether and simply telling people to have more children because there's a there's a shortage of, of eligible laborers um, for the workforce. Um, but I, thinking through these all of these changes, I, I was... Always, I'm always struck by how little actually changes. Change is so gradual. We we have the the decisions we make re- with regard to family planning are kind of a matrix of personal and collective and cultural, political, all of these factors that go into whether we're going to have a child or or not. And I just I don't see state policies as radically changing the way people think about reproduction. That, that's really refreshing to hear from someone talking about modern China, that the state is not the be all and end all <laughs> of what it's like to live in China. So thanks a lot for talking to us today. It was really great to talk to you, Sarah. Thank you. All right. Check out our website, transasiapod.history.wisc.edu. Or you can find us on Twitter at TransAsiaPod. Don't forget to share us if you like what you heard. Join us next time to learn more about TransAsia and the world. Our podcast is sponsored by UW-Madison's Department of History, and our podcast artwork is designed and created by Catherine Randall.